Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. Isaiah chapter 9 is where we will be this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, we'll read verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. He has done eight chapters of some of the most stringent, strongest words that God could speak according to judgment for His people. They have erred. They have failed. They have ruined themselves. But then the hope comes. And we'll begin reading here in verse 1, because he starts with the word but, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he retreated, or he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, that is the area around Galilee, south of Galilee, southwest of Galilee. A very insignificant little place. The town of Nazareth is in Galilee where Jesus lived. Not one time is Nazareth ever mentioned in the Old Testament. The most insignificant of places, he says, I treated them or God treated them with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, the Via Madra, the way of the sea goes right through Capernaum there around the Sea of Galilee. And on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And you shall multiply the nation. And you shall increase their gladness, and there will be, or they will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, they've won a war, the battle's over, now they're divvying up the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden, and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, and cloak rolled in blood, will be for burning fuel for the fire. The war is over. Why? For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of the peace. They had had peace before, but it ended. They had times before where they had great rulers, but they would die. And someone else would come along, and it would just get worse. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I want to do something a little different this morning than 
usual, so you know automatically I'm a tad nervous about trying it. But I do want to go back and look at verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. They've been in a land, they live in a land that's a dark land, and a light will shine on them. I want us to go back and take a look at just exactly what that darkness was like. I am always amazed if, after all the years of studying the Word of God. I am still amazed at the parallels between the Word of God of ancient times and modern life in the same world today. It is like there's some things that just never change. And it continues to repeat itself. And I want us to go back and take a look at that, that darkness. And we'll look at a few verses. I, I, I love uh, giving this passage a, a subtitle. We're, I'm, I'm calling the sermon today from gloom to gladness. But I think that Clement Clark Moore probably gave it a better title, The Night Before Christmas. That was a poem about, of course, somebody coming in the middle of the night. I'll just leave that there. Uh, but the night before Christmas, the darkness before Christmas, that's a great title for this passage. Because Isaiah has spent eight chapters telling us what all has gone wrong with the people of God, particularly the people in Judah. Now, understand the time frame here. The 12 tribes are divided. Ten in the north, that's the northern kingdom. We call them Israel most of the time. Two in the south, we call those tribes Judah. They are made up of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. That's the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom will be around for a while longer, but the northern kingdom has less than 20 years before the Assyrians are going to come and wipe them off of the face of the earth. And there's a war going on. Not a war between Judah and the Assyrians or Judah and the, some group of Canaanites. No, there's a war going on right now between the southern tribes and the northern tribes. Of all the people they fought, now they're fighting each other. It is a horrible, horrible time for them. A dark, dark day for the people of Judah. As a matter of fact, they've discovered something, that politics, first of all, had failed. They had leaders, some were good, some were bad in Judah. You always remember this, in the northern kingdom, they never had one good king. They had six good kings out of all of them in the southern kingdom of Judah. But in the north, they never had a good one. And so they have finally learned that trying to put somebody in office that's going to turn things around, that's got all the right ideas, and boy, he is the man of the hour. I'm just telling you, that is just not going to happen. And we can argue about it from now on. But I can tell you the answer for this world does not come and will never come from Washington, D.C. It has to be a work of God. Now, I'm not saying don't vote like uh, 
just whatever or, or not care about those things. I care deeply about them. I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, a patriotic American, and I love my country, and I, I weep over some of the things that I see going on here. But I've got enough sense to know that the answer for this world is not going to be Washington because the answer for this world is not legislation. Our, our problem is sin, and we need a Savior, and that's what we got at Christmas. Religion has failed as well. Here you have now the tribes in the south in a war with the tribes in the north. So even religion had failed. It's easy for us church folks sometimes to saddle up the old high horse and say, oh, this old world's in bad shape and, 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 and we've got the answers. And of course we do if we know it's Jesus Christ. But I'm going to tell you, God's people fail too. I know we have a world of sin that's out there, but we got problems in the churches as well. Churches are divided. There's all kinds of terrible things that have gone on and cropped up in recent years. It's really not new. It's gone on forever. As long as people are involved, there are always going to be issues. And the answer for the church is the same answer as it is for the world. It is a relationship repentance of our sin, and turning back to Jesus Christ. So they had failed as well. It's easy for us. We like to kind of blame the powers that be and the influence, influences around us. But in 1901, somewhere around there, G.K. Chesterton responded to some questions in the New York Times, and he was a Catholic uh, philosopher, but uh, he was a faithful Christian, even though he was Catholic and a philosopher. But he said one time when he was asked, what is wrong with the world? And Chesterton said, I am what is wrong with the world. And I'd say that to you this morning from my heart too. I'm what's wrong with the world. Because sometimes even though I'm a born-again Christian, I can be selfish. I can think of only of me. I, I can have areas in my life where there's laziness, where I'm not as concerned about the things I should be and other things I care about deeply. And there can be lust. There can be all kinds of things. I'm telling you, we as human beings, we are what's wrong with the world. And we need to take credit for that and ask for forgiveness of our sins. It's the only way revival is going to come. It's the only way. I guess the good news is the name Isaiah itself means that Yahweh is salvation. It's a name well suited for this man because he is preaching during a time when people need hope and he is trying to give them that. He preaches about 740 years before Christ. He'll preach about 40 years. Powerful prophet. I want to go back though. And we'll put the verses on the screen. Don't try to keep up. I don't like sermons that turn into a Bible drill, you know, where you're blowing women's hats off trying to get through a big old Schofield somewhere back there to keep up. Just read along with me. We'll put them on the screen. I want us to go back. I want us to look at this darkness because I think it will help us understand our world. Chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. 
writing to the southern kingdom, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, good king, Jotham, great king, Ahaz, terrible king, Hezekiah, good king, to all the kings of Judah. <laughs> Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. I raised you like you were my children. God says, I brought you up as infants. When you couldn't help yourself, I was there for you. And then finally in verse 3, he said, here's where we've gotten to. He says, an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. He says, Israel, your sins, Judah, your sins are at the point that it's, it's incredible. It's, it's unnatural. He says, even a, a beast like an, an ox, an old dumb ox will know who he belongs to. He'll hear that master's voice, and I'm not so sure, having uh, been raised on a cattle farm, how well they will respond. Uh, but I can tell you, an old dumb ox will know who his owner is. And even a donkey, he says, a, a donkey, he says, knows where to go and get food. He at least knows where the feed trough is. He can find it every time. But he says, my people don't seem to know. They don't seem to know me, and they don't seem to know where they can get the things that they need to get them through life. He says, they're like, you know, well, we need a new king, or, well, we need a, 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 a new this or that in our life, trivial things. He says, what you need is me. You have lost your way to the manger. You don't know where to be fed. You don't even know who owns you anymore. You have completely and totally lost your way. I think about the man that Jesus met in John chapter 5. He asked him a question, do you want to be well? Do you really want to be well? Or do you want to lie here another 38 years? He had been there 38 years. He's, he laid out on the, one of the five porticos there uh, in, around the pool. And, and there was this superstition that an angel would come and stir the waters. And the first one to get in the water, uh, he could be healed. Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing here, ask him, do you want to be well or do you like to lie here for another 38 years with people that are as sick as you are? That's what we do sometimes. We hang out with people that don't have any more answers than we do. I remember growing up, man, I had some friends that were as dumb as I was. And that's a dangerous thought right there. They didn't have any better ideas than I had. They were as intellectually crippled as I was. And, and boy, when we got together, we really could come up with some stem-winding ideas from time to time. He says, do you want to lie here with people that cannot help you? He didn't ask him, hey, well, uh, why don't I drag you over here? This guy's got one foot that works. Maybe when the angel stirs the water, he can kick you in the pool. He didn't say that. He says, I got one question for you. Do you want to be well? And then he told him to do something that he had not been able to do in 38 years. Today, people would take offense at that. How dare him to ask such a thing? He's not appreciating the 
condition that I have. He says, I want you to take up your bed and walk. I want you to do something that is impossible for you to do on your own. You will have to be touched by the power of God to be able to do it. And the man did it and he was healed. Maybe for you, it's not get up and walk. Maybe it's to forgive somebody. Maybe it's to take something that keeps you awake at night and leave it at the altar and put it in God's hands and walk away from it. It's not easy to do. Maybe it's something that happened to you that was terrible. It wasn't even your fault. But what are you going to do? The person's unrepentant. Maybe they're dead. What are you going to do? Maybe what you need to do is to learn how to forgive. Put it in God's hands Do something that you can only do with his power. In verse 8 of chapter 1, I'm jumping around. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. He said, that's what my people look like. You know, I, I, I really kind of put this verse in here because I knew we would understand it because of the, the, the North Carolina state flower, kudzu. He says, it's like a little hut in a vineyard. You just left there unattended, and before long, the vines take it over. And, and, and you put a little hut in a cucumber patch, and boy, if you don't keep up with the cucumbers, man, I can tell you they'll take it as well. And you finally get to where you don't even recognize it as a hut. You don't even recognize it as a little house. And, and I think sometimes once the creeping of sin and that steady falling away from God that we hardly even notice sometimes, in our life, once it's really taken effect, you look around one day and you don't even know who you are. You don't even recognize yourself. You have disappeared into a lifestyle. You've got so many things going on in your life that are plaguing you, so many bad decisions, so many problems. Maybe you cause them yourself or whatever, but if you get away from God, he says, Judah, He says, you have been just engulfed with the foolishness around you. In chapter 1, verse 15, So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Well, just keep praying then? No. He says, yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. You know, I don't know of anything much more horrible than unavailed prayer. And the thing that makes prayer unavailing worse than anything else is, is unrepentance. A lot, a, a, an abundance of stubbornness in our lives. When we get to the place in our lives that we got all these issues and we got all these things in our heart between us and other people and, and, and we're like, well, but that's their fault and God and I are okay. Remember what we learned in the Sermon on the Mount. It is not if your brother has something or if you have something against your brother. Jesus says, if your brother has something against you, if that relationship is broken before you come before me to worship me, go and make that right first and then come back to worship me. Verse 18 of chapter 1, come now and let us reason together. In the Hebrew, that's more of a legal term. It's less, let us sit down together 
Let us reason together, says the Lord. Let us discover what is right and wrong. And that's what would happen in a legal proceeding like this. We need to find out what the truth is. And man, I don't know of a time in our world when we needed a good dose of counsel from God about what is the truth and what is not. Our world is inundated with, well, I'll tell you how I see it. Man, I've told you before how I see it, and, and I guess $35 will get you a small cup of coffee at Starbucks. I, I don't know. I, I don't, not there much. I, I'm just saying to you, what I, how I see it doesn't matter. How I feel about it doesn't matter. We have lost our way. We don't even, man, ideas like right and wrong, they're ideas that have, have they're just no longer popular in the marketplace of thinking in our world. And I like what Gary Smith, he's a commentator in the New American Commentary, he says, when he says, come let us reason together, it's not like, okay, why don't we reach a compromise? Because he goes right on to say, though your sins are as scarlet. He says, your problem is sin. And the things we're discussing, they are sins. He says, so this is not to argue whether Judah has sinned, nor to reevaluate the legitimacy of people's worship, nor to assess whether justice was provided for the widow or the orphan. He said, that's already been decided. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Now, that's good news. And what do we call good news in the New Testament? We call it the gospel. That's what good news is. It's both. It's good. And for a lot of people, I'm afraid it's news. They don't realize they can be forgiven. They don't realize that God can actually change their life and forgive their sin. But I want to tell you, if there's one part of this message today that has burned a hole in my soul this week, it's this right here. The great divide in the modern church as I see it, it's not whether God will forgive sin. That's, that's not it at all. This, this, I, I, w- I wish I could just stand up in front of the whole world and say this one time, but... They're not here, so you get to hear it. But I'm telling you, it's not whether God will forgive sin. That's, that's not it at all. You know, I get so frustrated sometimes as a pastor because I do, I'm a, I'm, I preach the Word. I believe the Bible is the inerrant Word of God, and that's where I stand. But sometimes people consider that bigotry and narrow-mindedness and and, and, and I kind of see where they're coming from, but I would love to have a conversation with some of them and, and, and just, just ask them a few questions because here's the deal. We preach forgiveness. We're, we're not condemning. The woman that was caught in adultery, Cornerstone Fellowship doesn't condemn that woman. I, I, I made a post this week about religion condemns people for dirty feet. Jesus washes them. Man, that's where we stand. And, and, I, and I'm so tired of people acting like, well, I, uh, y'all want to condemn everybody and, 
and 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 you're you're so self-righteous or whatever. Man, I, I'm telling you, being understood is bad enough. Being misunderstood can just drive you crazy. Because that's not a question about will God forgive sin. It's a question, and this is what divides the church today: liberal versus biblical. What divides liberal versus biblical is who needs forgiveness. Who needs forgiveness? See, that's where we are. And that's what I want to ask them. I want to ask them, well, since you believe in forgiveness, who needs forgiveness? Who are you willing to look at and say to them, you are a sinner? And what you're doing is sinful, but God will forgive you. He provided a way for you to be forgiven and have your heart cleansed. It's not forgiveness, though, that some people are seeking. It's validation and authentication and acceptance. And I can tell you, there's something far better than any of that. How about deliverance, transformation, and forgiveness? question is, well, who needs it? I don't think we've read the Bible. And a lot of these people talk about, I've read the Bible. Most people that tell you that, they just broke one of the commandments. Thou shalt not lie. Man, they couldn't find Genesis with both hands in two hours. But I will say this. If they would read what Jesus said, Read the, go to the conversation Jesus had with the woman at the well. You know what we would have done with the woman at the well? We, we, we would have put her in a pump. We would have. We would have got some money together. And, you know, back then I guess a pump would have been a new windlass. If you don't know what that is, then you're just too old. You're not, you're just, I'm not, I mean, you're too young. <laughs> we would have put her in a new windlass and a fresh bucket and all of that and We'd have fixed her up. We'd have given her water that as she drank it, she would have thirsted again. But we would have felt so good about ourselves. We'd talk about, well, some people go over there and they just preach to her. We went over there and we took her some water because that's what the woman needed. Jesus never drew her a cup of water. He said, the water I want to give you is not like the water that maybe some church group needing to feel good about itself wants to give you. I want to give you water that if you drink it, you will never thirst again. And I'm, don't you leave here today and tell people, well, Preacher Mike said if people are perishing to death for water, we shouldn't give it to them. See, that might just take me over the edge right there. That might put me back on the Xanax drip for a while. I'm just telling you, I'm so frustrated. Why don't they just read what Jesus said? This woman is talking religion like an out-of-town preacher. And Jesus finally hit the nail on the head. He said, go and get your husband. She was relieved at first, I'm sure, because now he, he must not know much about her. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, I know. You've had five. And the man you're shacking up with now is not your husband. Boy, that's when the lump hit her in the throat. But you see what Jesus did? Jesus came bringing forgiveness. 
What if he had looked at her and said, I know you've been condemned by your whole town. That's why you're out here in the middle of the day by yourself drawing water. The women won't even have anything to do you. You've been treated like an outcast, but I want you to know there are a lot of women that have had five husbands. He could have told her one of these days, I'm going to create a woman named Elizabeth Taylor, and she is really going to show out on the husband thing. You're just not going to believe it. That's not what Jesus did. As a matter of fact, when the woman went back to her town, she told them, come meet a man that told me all the things that I ever did. If you ever wondered how such a big crowd followed her back out to the well, be a guy in a town with a woman like that and find out there's a guy outside at the well that knows everything this woman's ever done. Wow. That's like the Epstein flight data logs. In John chapter 8, woman caught in adultery. Nobody said the word sin in that whole scenario, but Jesus, and he said it twice. He didn't say she didn't deserve death because she did. But so did all of them. He just put them in a quandary because they couldn't figure out who was going to throw the first rock. But then he looked at the woman. He said, he that is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And then the second time he brought up sin was when he looked at her and he said, go and sin no more. Now, in that story, how many people in this world that spout off about Scripture do you think really know that the only one in that group to call her a sinner was Jesus? And let me ask you this. Trick question. What if after Jesus healed the man at the pool? Go back to him for a second. How crazy would it have been? How unappreciated would it have been? What if somebody had followed him over to the temple? What if somebody had walked up to the guy that was lying there for 38 years, crippled that Jesus had healed? What if somebody had walked up to him and told him, well, you better quit sinning or something worse is going to happen to you? Would that not be out of, that, that just be, that's not right, is it? Well, somebody did do that. I said trick question because I didn't want anybody to jump in there. Jesus is the one that followed him to the temple. And Jesus told him in verse 14 of chapter 5. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. But you got a bigger problem than being paralyzed. A bigger problem than being deserted and left alone. He says, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Whatever happened to you, if you think that's bad, if you don't deal with the real problem in your life, sir, something worse, something unimaginable could happen to you. Now, this is what Jesus has said. Though your sins be as scarlet, Isaiah tells us here, God tells his people, though they be as scarlet, you can have forgiveness, and they can be made white as snow. So my question again, the church, I want to tell you right now, the people that some left here, 
I don't know who because I couldn't see them. <laughs> but people who left here because they felt like just too condemning. Just, ooh. I, and I, I, you know, I, I, I don't read much of my press. I, that, that, that will kill you. But I, I, I just know that there are people that have felt like it. it now it's just, just too stringent. It's just, just, just too much talk about sin or, or, or whatever. I really would like to ask them, well, then who needs forgiveness? That's the question we're divided over. And they don't know how to answer it. I can tell you that right now. Ask them, would you go up to a gay man and tell him, hey, listen, I know the church condemns you, but I want you to know Jesus Christ can forgive you of your sinfulness. They're never going to do that. Never going to do that. And he's not going to hear the good news. He's going to die lost and go to hell, not because he's gay, but because he doesn't know Jesus as his Savior, because we are in such a mixed up state as a church. Half of us don't believe the man needs forgiveness. I have a pastor friend of mine. He kind of has a nemesis in his life. Boy, he's a great man of God. Ta- texted me this morning just to tell me that he was praying for me. He prays for me every Sunday. I pray for him every Sunday. Got a list of pastors I pray for every Sunday because I know they're about to do what I'm about to do. And I know they can't do it any better than I can if they don't have the help from God. So I pray for him. I have a friend of mine, though, he went to high school with a guy that grew up, and he went in the ministry as well. Matter of fact, he's a music director at another church. He drives my pastor friend crazy. Social media is one of his favorite ways to attack, but almost everything my pastor friend says about sin and forgiveness, he comes in with the progressive liberal view and just absolutely I mean, will spit in the face of rock-solid Scripture to make his point. What is this guy's problem? Well, he may have a lot of them, but one of them is he is married to the pastor of his church. He leads the music, and his husband leads the worship. Up about Asheville. Now, I want to ask you something. I know what you're going to say. One, because you believe the Word of God, and two, because you're sitting in here. Does that man need forgiveness? He does. He doesn't need condemning unless he's not willing to repent, and then there's no hope for him. That man needs forgiveness, not validation. I, not boy, there's a church somewhere. I don't even know the name of it. Don't care. Don't even remember the denomination. I think it's Lutheran. I don't know, but it doesn't matter. Rather than to have a church that's embracing that and a bunch of people that are selfishly scratching their itch to be able to say, well, we're one of those modern thinking churches and we don't condemn people and we accept everybody just like Jesus did. They're scratching their own itch and they're serving their own cause and they're so selfish with it they don't mind if people die and go to hell. Because they need that feeling of inclusivity so 
badly, it is like cocaine. And they'll say the dumbest, most unbiblical things to get that fix. Wow. Well, I'm going to move on. Chapter 2, look at verse 4. It says, and they will hammer their swords and plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. He said, these wars, one right after another, you fought so many of them. He says, I can finish all of this one day on Calvary when I come and die and for the sins of the world, I can offer peace like nothing else can. And these wars can be over. And I want to kind of personalize that because I did some of this myself. I, I was, I was, I, I was, uh, uh, I, I, I liked to, to, to scrap. I, I just had a chip on my shoulder. I think I grew up mad because of things with my family when I was a kid and being given away when I was a child. And so I just set out to beat the world up. And man, I'll tell you, I met, I, I met a few guys that, uh, they weren't as impressed with me as, as I, I was with me. <laughs> but I want to tell you, I really met somebody I couldn't whip one night, and that was God. My life fell all to pieces. It was absolutely in turmoil, and I had fought and was so rebellious, and people tried to love me. People I grew up as a kid in church with would reach out to me, and I kept fighting that battle. Man, so I, I know a little bit about it. So, so just hear me when I say this to you. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, man, I'm tired of fighting. I have tried my best to, to fight to feel better about myself. I, 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 I'm, I'm just always in a war. I got a chip on my shoulder. I'm mad at somebody. I blamed everybody else in the world. Some of it is their fault. But God, I want some peace in my life. I want some contentment in my life, finally, God. I want to put my faith and trust in you, Lord, and the people I can't forgive, and there's a long list of them. I want you to give me the power to forgive them, God, by the grace that you gave us when you died on the cross. Hero Onada, we talked about him one time a long time ago. The war... World War II ended 29 years before he got word. And he was so faithful. He lived in the jungles of the South Pacific. And he kept fighting and occasionally killing people. His uniform, when they finally found him, had almost rotted off of him. And guess what? He still would not surrender. He said, until my commanding officer who commissioned me to come here to fight, until he tells me the war is over, I will fight on. And Japan had to go get his commanding officer and fly him down there to tell this poor old Japanese man. I guess pictures of him. You can see it. He tried to sew together tree bark to help make clothes and stuff. This man fought for 29 years years after the battle was over. What a sad, sad way to live. Fighting a war that's done. It's done. 
And, and I want to tell you, a lot of the battles that we try to fight on our own, it, it's, it's over. Christ has died for those sins. That, that, that guilt you feel every night when you go to bed, man, I can t- tell you something. You, that, that can stop. That, that trying to legitimize what you did because they, you just don't know what else to do with it. You know you made a terrible mistake. You know you did something dumb. Maybe you ran around on your wife or your husband or you committed some terrible, horrible sin, whatever it might be, or just some run-of-the-mill sin, whatever it might be in your life. I can tell you now, when you feel like there's nothing I can do about it, i got to try to legitimize it. i got to keep comparing myself to other people. i got to keep looking for people who have sins that are worse than mine. Would you like for that to finally be over with? Sure you would. Wouldn't it be great? To finally have peace. There's, there's a word in the Greek, tetelestai. One long word. It's translated, it is finished. It is finished. Man. And I, I don't, I, I don't want to, try to get into some Greek lesson here because I'm not qualified for one, but I will tell you this. You hear to tell. That's doubling that first syllable. That puts it in a type of perfect tense in the Greek. That means from this point on, it is finished and there will never, ever, ever be a time when it is not finished. What he did on that cross, put an end to it. Man, let him forgive you. Let him put his arms around you and love you. And then something awesome might happen. You might forgive somebody else. Wow. How great would that be? Pastor, you don't know. He raped me. I'm so sorry to hear that. That's terrible. But it's time for him to stop raping you. He's dead. He's somewhere else. He's in jail. I don't know. Whoever molested you when you were a child, man, don't let them keep haunting your life. Have they followed you around ever since? Man, let God, with his miraculous power, be able to help you turn all of that loose. It's finished. And it it just just imagine running into the arms of God. C.S. Lewis tells us because God is outside of time. When we go to Him with our prayers, it's not like we're put in a line to have to wait. You know, I've wondered before. I, I think about these deep theological quandaries like, how are we all going to worship God with so many of us up there in heaven at one time? I, you know. And when I pray, how many more people pray? I'll get up early and try to get mine on the docket, you know, sooner than somebody else. The cool thing that C.S. Lewis says about God that is so awesome, because he is outside of time, it is like he has no one else to talk to but you. Would you not like to run in his arms and let him wrap them around you and whisper in your ear to tell us, die? 
is finished. It's over. You can have peace. Peace like you never dreamed you could ever have. Wow. We got to get to the good part where he tells us who came. That wonderful counselor and that mighty God. And we're going to do it when you come back tonight. See, that was a little commercial I threw in there. I knew I wouldn't finish this. But I don't pray that God will help me finish them. I just pray that God will give me the words that he wants me to say. And I believe he said them today. And I believe there's hearts here that he has spoken to. Boy, make this the best Christmas you've ever had. Let God touch your heart where it hurts the deepest. Let let God give you a peace like you're never going to find anywhere else. Let God give you some relief from the pain. And I know there's some of you, I see you sitting here, and I, I know your stories. I may know some of your stories, and you may not even know I know. It doesn't, doesn't matter. I'm not taking this lightly. I understand we've got people in here. It's not just like, well, you bought a car, and it broke down. No, you bought a marriage, and it broke down. You trusted somebody and loved them, and you trusted them to love you, and they didn't. They failed you, and it hurt, didn't it? Maybe you lived for years with things in your life, guilt and worry and frustration and shame, and you didn't realize and know that, but when you were a small child, that wasn't your fault that that happened. Somebody took advantage of you, and they got away with it, maybe. Scot-free. A lot of them do. You know, we're eventually going to finally get around to the question, do pedophiles need forgiveness? Because when you go down that progressive line of thinking that everybody just needs to be accepted and embraced, you're going to have to figure out a stopping place somewhere, friend. But I can just tell you, they do need forgiving. Maybe you're the one that needs to forgive them. I know God does. I know God does, but it's for the benefit of your own peace and sanity. God can give you the power and strength to lay some things down that you've been carrying a long time. He said it in the Scripture we read, that that staff that's laid heavy on the shoulder of my people, I'm going to break it to pieces. That load they have been made to carry. Matter of fact, the word forgive in the Greek New Testament is a word that means to cut a strap loose so that a load falls from the back of a beast of burden. Heavy load. It hits the ground. Oh, beast kind of shakes. It's not there anymore. That's forgiveness. Man, let's bow together. God, we come to you today thanking you, Lord, for you coming to us today. 
We needed a word from you, Lord. God, we didn't just need another Christmas to go by. Dragging around the same old burdens and heartaches. We needed some hope, Lord. And we thank you for that. I pray, God. I pray, Lord, for that dear soul that's sitting here today. No one can imagine the hurt and the depth of pain that maybe they felt. Some may have gone through the same situation, Lord, but even if we have, we don't, we don't know how it affects other people. God, that's something personal to them. Lord, I pray right now. I pray, Lord, that person, God put their faith and trust in a relationship, gave it their all, kept their promise that they made before you and the church, and somebody else didn't, God. I pray for that person, Lord, that may have carried a burden of guilt and shame in their life for years. Maybe it was for something that was not even their fault. But Lord, I also pray today for that person that it was their fault. I pray for the person that may have may have been the, the, the one that, that committed the crime, Lord. The abuser, God. Lord, I pray for that person as well. I pray that they could find peace. Lord, You will forgive. I pray that You'd help us, God, to reignite that message, Lord, of forgiveness. Do not be shy about it, Lord. People don't need placebos, God. They need something that works. Help us, Father. Help us, Father, as a church to renew our commitment to stand up and call sin, sin. And Lord, then to offer the good news. The good news that You forgive and You can wash us white as snow. Thank You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.